Hey, welcome everyone watching online. Hopefully that didn't disrupt your ears too much. And um, welcome to everyone here in person. We still miss a lot of you who are, are staying home for health reasons and other reasons, um, knowing that we don't have childcare yet. And I don't blame you if you have a two-year-old. I'd probably stay home too. Uh, they're hard to corral in this time. It's a little easier in your home. We understand completely, but let's worship together. Uh, I love, love studying the Word of God. Um, I know that sometimes sermons are more thematically oriented, and sometimes they're very word-based. And uh, not often to that do we just get to like sweep through the Scripture and see what God is doing. And uh, I've chosen this summer a, a kind of strange choice. I told you before that I'm trying to preach through the whole Bible before uh, I retire, or God takes me home, whatever the case may be, and I'm, I'm left with the books I didn't want to preach on, um, because I preached through the ones I wanted to preach on, so now I'm in books like this, Ezekiel. Funny, when um, we started talking and praying about uh, starting fullness back in, really it was 1992, that um, I went away with Larry to a place over in Tuscaloosa. He was praying with me about his participation, and I was praying about what God would do. And at this place, um, I read through the book of Ezekiel. Uh, so we're talking, you know, ancient history now. And God spoke to me in a, in a lot of different ways. And honestly, this passage I'm going to read to you this morning, uh, I'm going to read parts of it. I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's a little long. I'm covering chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11 in Ezekiel which is a lot of scripture, and I hope you've read it already. But if you haven't, I want to encourage you to read it. But I'm going to kind of uh, dissect it a little bit today to give us the sweeping picture and hopefully bring you to the truth that I experienced way back in 1992 that really helped impact not only my personal life, but the life of this church. Does that make sense? Is that a big enough lead-in? Okay, um, we are in a different, difficult time when everyone is trying to determine what is right and what is wrong. What is the right thing to do? What is the right thing to say? What is the right label to put on a building or a package? What is the right thing? Now, this is not a new discussion. The discussion about ethical behavior versus unethical behavior is ancient. The challenge is not whether we want to be ethical people. I think most people want to be ethical, moral people. The question is, who determines what is ethical or moral? Who, who is the one? Is it every person under themselves? Is my ethical or moral perspective, the perspective or lens through which the world must be viewed? And if, that, if that's the case, then every ethical, moral decision is subjective, meaning depending on the person or whoever you're talking about. If you want to talk about an objective, meaning it's set, who determines the objective, moral, ethical standard? We have a whole group of um, new atheists who basically are saying science has determined within each one of us. We were even talking about that. I was talking about this with Gabriel. I've watched some um, different videos by a guy named Sam Harris and others who are basically saying 
we do have an objective moral standard, but it's determined by science and it's, it's evolutionary, it's in us. I really struggle with that, I gotta be honest. I, I mean, I, I, I understand they're really smart guys and they say it in such a way that makes it almost believable, but then there's something in my core that says, no, there has to be, there has to be an external, objective, moral, standard. Even if you want to look back and say, our ethical moral standards, I'm getting to a point, so just hang on with my philosophical ramblings here for a minute. Even if you want to say that, look, we have the writings of, uh, of others from 100, 200, 1,000 years ago, uh, Plato, Aristotle, uh, all the way up through uh, the plays of Shakespeare and the writings of um, English poets and and we can determine ethical moral standards of mankind based on these writings over a period of time, I would say, you know, we don't know for sure that the person who's writing that was the ethical moral standard of the day, was it their ethical moral standard or was it their dream for the ethical moral standard for their day? Does that make sense? In other words, who says what's right and wrong? I know you know where I'm going with this. That at some point, we as believers in a God, who has given us direction, have to come to a point where we say, he is the one. We have an objective standard because God has given it to us. It is he who determines what is right and what is wrong. But here's the question, has God changed? Has God suddenly shifted his moral ethical view on certain issues? And therefore, do we change with God? Well, if God changed, then yes, we would change with him. But if God hasn't changed, then at what point do we say God's standard still applies? As challenging it may be in the world. My contention that we're going to see today is this, and I'm just going to... Just give you the cards on the table and then hopefully get there at some point. Is that your ethical moral standard is determined ultimately by who or what you worship. That worship is at the heart of the battle of the ages. And that ultimately you and I have divided what we worship by the way we act. But God says what you worship determines who you are. It leads to life or death, and it will change the course of your life. It's all about worship. You may say, no, no, we divide worship from behavior. You're free to worship whoever you want or whatever you want, but you're not free to act in any way that you want. And my contention based on, I think, the word of God this morning is that your actions are determined by your worship ultimately. So at the core, you have to come back to who am I worshiping? Because that will determine. Okay, you with me so far? That's this long setup, but I had a little extra time. I thought I'd philosophize for a moment this morning. That wasn't even written down. Now we're going to get to the stuff that is on the page. <laughs> Amen. Yeah. Listen, uh, Ezekiel, Ezekiel is this young prophet and priest who is in exile in Babylon. Uh, we've seen already that he didn't think God could show up in Babylon because God was limited to the temple. 
His presence was in Jerusalem. He's now 700 miles away from Jerusalem, taken into captivity into Babylon. He's by the Kabar Canal or River. God shows up in a chariot with wheels and wheels and, and cherubims and you know, flaming stuff. And he has a vision of God. And, and God pronounces judgment on the nation of Israel because of their behavior. And it's all for this reason, so that they will know that he is the Lord. Every passage here is based, and we looked at last week out of chapter 6, that it is because he is the Lord. They would know. Now, we don't want to see this. We want to know that he's the Lord, again, by the blessing, the prosperity, the health, the life. Oh, I'll know God's in my life because I'm doing so good. But he's saying here, no, I'm bringing down the hammer so that you'll know that I'm God. Now, Ezekiel, in chapter 8, I'm leading into this, chapter 8, after this pronouncement of judgment, we find Ezekiel in his house, and there's a specified date here, by the way, which scholars can also give us this exact date. I love the fact that the Bible is rooted in history. Uh, you can see, this is historical, there's a place, there's a time, Ezekiel's at his house on this date, and the elders of Jerusalem, the elders of Israel, who are in exile too, these elders, are at his house. So at some point, Ezekiel's being recognized as a prophet. And at this moment, he has a vision. And in his vision, the Lord, angel of the Lord, yanks him by the hair and takes him out of his house and takes him to Jerusalem to show him what's going on. Now, this is all visionary, prophetic stuff. But he wants to show him kind of the nature of Israel. And I'm going to try and move through chapter 8 into chapter 9 and 10, eventually to 11. And, but not so fast that we don't get the sweeping nature of what's going on here. Because they come, this comes as a package. So in 8, he, he goes to Jerusalem and he has a vision of four different things that are taking place here. The first one is it's... Um, Provoking jealousy. Provoking jealousy. He goes into, and I'm in chapter 8. This is verses 3 through 6. If you want to read along, hopefully you have your Bibles and you're following along with me. I'll give you different scripture passages. Again, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but hopefully you'll catch the picture. So he goes to the temple, and in the temple there is an idol in the temple, and they call it the idol that provokes jealousy. In the temple. For where the worship of God is supposed to take place. There's a temple, there's an idol that people are worshiping. Now here's what we don't know. We don't know if there really was an idol in the temple at this moment. Now we know that there were historically idols raised in the temple. But we don't know at this moment if there is one. But here's the point that God is showing Ezekiel. The people are trying to worship me and worship an idol. At the same time. In other words, they're saying they're in the temple. What, what is the purpose of being in the temple of God? This is not a hard question. You might as well stay with me and answer me. It just, it'll be fun for all of us here. Um, to worship God. That was the point of going. Even, you had to go up on a mountain. On the mountain to worship God. It's a special trip and everything. You're supposed to go worship God. 
But while they were there, in their hearts, they're also worshiping idols. And it provokes jealousy. God says, I'm a jealous God. And here's, here's my point a little bit. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make the point Ezekiel's trying to make, and then I'm going to kind of hammer us just a little bit. I'm going to phrase this like this, and it may be offensive to you. My, 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 my thought is this. My thought is not, do you have an idol in your life? My point is this, what is the idol that you're tempted to worship alongside God? Because we all have them. And if we're not careful, God would not have made it such a big deal to worship him and him alone if it was easy to worship him and him alone. The problem is idols are always coming at us. And I doubt anyone here has a little statue at home that you go home to and bow down to and pray to and worship to. But you have a view of the home you walk into. There are people here probably who, who, who their home, that physical building is an idol. You spend more time thinking about it. I like this home. I like the paint in here. I like the floors. I like the, I like the way my yard looks. I, I think about my home a lot. I can't wait to get to my home. And you're thinking, I Listen, we worship, some, some of us in America, we worship our homes, the physical place. And it takes our heart away. You know, ah, okay, not that one. How about money? We worship money. We love money. Money, 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 money. We love it. I mean, it's got a, it's got a grip on our, our hearts. I'll get back to this in just a moment. Our stuff. Our cars, our resources, our families become an idol of worship. Wait, wait, wait a minute, Pastor Bart, you're stepping a little too far. No, no, no. There can only be one, number one, right? God. And everything else has to be in the order. But sometimes we, we in the church, have justified a family-centered or child-centered worship of children or spouse or family other than God. Look, value your family. I'm not saying that, but you've got to worship God and worship him alone. And then he'll give you the order for your family. We worship our looks. We, we worship the way we look. $16.5 billion was spent on cosmetic surgery alone in America last year. $16.5 billion. It's, it, we worship the way we look. We worship the way our celebrities look. We, 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 this whole virus thing, it's been hysterical to me to see people on like uh, uh, Zoom calls and, you know, they're in their home like celebrities, let's say. So we've got celebrities in their home where the makeup lady can't come and do their makeup or their hair. And it's like, oh, that's what they really look like right there. Why, and you know, the problem is they would never go outside looking like that because we worship the way they look. And we know that if they go outside looking like that, they're going to be a million trolls on Twitter or somewhere saying, look how horrible so-and-so looks. And it creeps down into us and we don't even know it. So that we think, oh, everybody cares what they look like, must care what I look like. And then, so we worship the My point is this. Anything that we worship other than God provokes jealousy within him. And he's saying, you can't worship that and me at the same time. 
And they had an idol that was, and I can't take this long on every one of my points. Okay, the second one is this. Oh, I, I, sorry, I, put, I punched the thing too many times. So now you see the third one, as well as the second one that I'm going to talk about. Because I can't go back on this thing. Secret acts. So he sees this idol that provokes jealousy. It's in the temple. Then the angel takes him and says, hey, there's a hole here in the ground between the wall of the temple. Dig out the hole and go into the basement. And so he goes into the basement. And by the way, let me say this. There was no basement to the temple. That's why we know this is all kind of visionary. There was no basement. Not like Alabama. They didn't have a basement there. So, but he goes in the basement, and in the dark, he sees the elders, the priests, the leaders, offering up incense to Egyptian gods. And I don't think at this point his, his idea is their idol worship. I think his point here is that they're sinning, and they're doing it in the dark, thinking they're getting away with it. And God sees it. They're secret acts. Now, come on, people. Don't we know that most of our most awful secret acts are the ones we think we're doing when nobody else is around. We think we're getting away with it. We think these things are done in secret. And he is saying, God sees. God sees what's taking place. The third vision he has, he goes back out, and there's a, a, a statue of a, a Sumerian god, goddess, really, uh, by the name of Tammuz. Tammuz is a Sumerian god of fertility. Um, in this age, uh, we have children present. So in this age, um, they acted out physically the fertility rites. You all with me? You understand what I'm saying here? So, so fertility worship was very popular. I mean, they had temple prostitutes. Um, the, the whole, I mean, you can imagine if you wanted to develop a very popular religion, say, hey, we want the ground to be fertile, so we're going to reenact fertility physically, and now it'll bless our, our land. So they were enamored with sex. They, they love, listen, people, is there any, I could apply all of these to us today so easily, but we live in an age that's not enamored with sex, we're addicted to it. And on all fronts, all corners as well. And then the final issue they had was they were exalting nature. So he, the, the Spirit of the Lord takes him to the temple, shows him the idol that provokes jealousy, into the basement, shows him the secret acts, takes him back out, shows him an idol that's for sexual worship. And then the final scene that he has in uh, verse 16 of chapter 8 is the people have turned their backs to the temple and are now worshiping the sun itself. In other words, they, they have, they've turned their backs and they are worshiping the created rather than the creator. Um, does this sound familiar from anywhere for biblical? Romans 1, 2, 3, Paul says the same thing. Talks about, you know, this is one of the turning overs. They've worshipped the created rather than the creator. Again, I believe all of these apply to us today. That we're worshipping created things rather than creator. When you worship another human being, you're worshipping a created. 
not a creator. Hello? When we exalt humanity and become humanist, at our core, what we're doing is we're worshiping the created, not the creator. When we worship nature, we worship... Listen, I love nature. I, I believe God speaks to me when I go on hikes and outdoors and in nature. But the difference is I'm saying, God, thank you for your created order. I want to hear what you're saying to me. I don't turn to the tree and say, oh, tree, I love you so much. You're, you know, you understand, I, I know I'm making, being facetious, but we all can easily get there. And I, I want to say to you today that I believe what he's saying here is that what you worship is what you become. What you worship is what you become. You may think, well, wait a minute, that's a big step. What about God loves the, the, the sinner but hates the sin? I think he hates the sin because in the sinner, the sinner becomes more like the sin. In other words, we, when we start to move in these directions, we start to become these things. It alters our way of thinking. We justify our behavior to feed our habits. Famous book from actually the early 90s, 1991. So we're going on, what, 30 years? Coming up on 30 years? I did the math. See how quick I did that. Uh, 1991, 30 years. One of the questions in this incredible book was, what would you do for $10 million? Now, this is 1991, $10 million, so whatever that is today. But it was still a lot of money. What would you do for $10 million? 25, it's called The Day America Told the Truth. And it was an anonymous survey asking Americans what they would do for, you understand, Tim? I had a whole series of questions. This one fascinated me because 25% of Americans would leave, abandon totally their families for $10 million. I'll leave my family, I have no contact with my family at all. Now, some people probably would have done it for a dollar. Uh, but you know, I know there are some tensions in families, so maybe that doesn't strike you quite as big as some of the other ones. 23% um, would become a prostitute for a week. A week for $10 million. 10% would withhold testimony that would allow a murderer to go free for $10 million. Here's the one that... I, kicked me was 7%, 7%. So look around. we got about 100 people in this room. Seven people in this room for $10 million would kill a total stranger of Americans. Is that not scary? We think, oh, we're all, we're all kind of good people. We, you know, we, we don't, you're looking around. I wonder if it's in. I'm going to pick me out seven. Seven out of a hundred, seven percent of people, we had about a hundred people here today, seven of you would kill a total stranger for ten million dollars. Unless it were a family member that you were going to ban and then you'd probably do it for a lot less again. So, uh, but a total stranger. Here's my point. We worship money. And so then money is what we become about, which then in turn determines our actions. It determines who we are. <clears throat> I'm going to make a statement. I'll probably get in trouble 
at some point because everything's filmed, everything's recorded, everything's out there. And I believe, this is just me, just my own personal opinion. You can take it or leave it. I believe the sin of racism is an economic thing, ultimately, at its core. It becomes about money. Everything in America becomes about money. And that at its core, if we dug down deep enough, much, if not, I, I know I can't make a sweeping statement to say that all racism, but I believe a lot of it has to do with economic. I think that's where Louis Giglio got in such trouble a couple of weeks ago. He recognized that racism, slavery, economics, American prosperity were all tied in together. And he misspoke what I think was actually at the heart of American stuff. Because we become what we worship. I think I've hammered that enough. Here's going on in Ezekiel. He says to them, Have you seen this, son of man? Is it a trivial matter for the house of Judah to do the detestable things they are doing here? Must they also fill the land with violence and continually provoke me to anger? Look at them putting the branch to their nose. I, I, by the way, I'm going to stop there. I think that's a really funny phrase. Look at them putting the branch to their nose. I, 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 it cracked me up so much. I've researched. I spent way too much time trying to find out what this meant. Putting the branch to their nose. And you know what? Nobody knows exactly what it means. The most common thought is it's basically flipping them off. Attitude toward God of saying, and this is God speaking. He goes on and says, therefore, I will deal with them in anger. I will not look on them with pity or spare them. Although they shout in my ears, I will not listen to them. In other words, he's saying, I think you, they become so much the object of worship. They become that, that now they're, they're, hey, I'm done with you, God. He goes on and says, the sin, the sin of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. The land is full of bloodshed and the city is full of injustice. They say, the Lord has forsaken the land. The Lord does not see. So I will not look on them with pity or spare them, but I will bring down on their own heads what they have done. Injustice, corruption, the poor being trampled on, innocent people dying. They are and have become this. Then in chapter 10, excuse me, chapter 9, he has this vision of an angel going through the land. God's justice has been proclaimed. He's going through the land, and he, he, he says to an angel, take a, a pencil and a piece of paper and write it down, and, and I want you to mark on the heads those that are worshiping me, and then not on, don't mark on those who are worshiping idols. Go through and put an X on this people. And then gathers six angels and says, go throughout the city and kill everyone who doesn't have a mark on their head. And then in chapter 10, we see this rising of the chariot that came in the vision of uh, chapter 1. And they take a coal from kind of the wheels, a coal from the chariot, tells an angel to take a coal and rain down fire on Jerusalem. It, it is a picture 
of God's judgment coming on the people whose hearts are divided and whose worship is given to other things. And it leads me to the, the second point, which is this. What you worship leads to life or death. Uh, if indeed you become what you worship, then what you worship will also lead you on the path to life or death. Ezekiel is saying that. Now, you may be saying, well, wait a minute, we live in a grace-filled age, but I do believe still that we choose that path or life or death based on our choices when it comes to even Jesus and grace and receiving the grace of, grace of God. Sin is a matter of heart, and it's a reflection of its corruption. It stems from our worship, which leads to our actions, and it's our actions, our sinful actions of our heart that God judges. I'm, I'm really getting to the good stuff here, and I gotta, I'm going to move it along. Then in chapter 11, he says this, Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will gather you from the nations and bring you back from the countries where you have been scattered. And I will give you back the land of Israel again. So God is saying, I'm going to destroy them. I'm going to kill them. He's already said in earlier chapters, hasn't he? I, there's only going to be a remnant that returns. This is the first. We're 11 chapters into Ezekiel. This is really the first sign of hope we see. Everything so far has been... It's bad, and it's going to get worse, and then it's going to get worser and worser. And now, at least we have this glimmer of hope of them returning to the land. In verses seven, he goes on in verses 17 and 20 and says, They will return to it and remove all the vile images and detestable idols. I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove, remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Then they will follow my decrees and be my people and keep my laws. Then they will be my people and I will be their God. It's a sign of, of hope of the people returning and they tear down all the idols and God gives them a new heart and they'll be his people and they'll worship him with undivided hearts, and guess what? It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen because the people, they don't receive that. They don't receive it. And as a result, there's this long period of People in the land, but not, but not of God. Now, you may be saying, well, I, this doesn't seem like that very hopeful. But the, you've got this really important passage. God's going to get them an undivided heart. Remove from them a heart of stone, put in them a heart of flesh, and then they'll have an undivided heart. Now, I really want to preach. I wanted to preach this passage this morning, but I, I've been really nice, and I've left it for Scott to do uh, when he preaches when we go back because this is going to come back in like 20 chapters from now where Ezekiel is going to talk about it again and Scott's going to focus right on this passage later in July here's the here's the point I, I want to make God is God is at move God is moving and he's he's speaking judgment 
But at the same time that he's speaking judgment, he's also speaking hope. And that there's going to come a day when things are going to really be different. Now, here's the part I think is just phenomenal. I've, I've, it, it's a long setup to get to where we are. What I want you to see is the movement of the glory of God in this whole passage. And I've kind of avoided these passages, but I think they go to the whole aspect of worship. It has to do with the glory of God. So just stay with me for like five more minutes, and then I think you'll be glad we did. At least I really, really hope so. Chapter 8, verses 3 and 4, it says, The Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven, and in visions of God he took me to Jerusalem. This is his initial vision. To the entrance to the north gate of the inner court. And there before me was the glory of God of Israel, as in the vision I had seen in the plain. So in the Holy of Holies, in the temple, was where the glory of God dwelt, right? In Old Testament thinking on the Ark of the Covenant, in the holiest place, in the Holy of Holies, the Shekinah glory of God dwelt. When Solomon built his temple hundreds of years before, remember when they dedicated the temple, what happened? The glory of God descends on the temple, and the priests were so overwhelmed they couldn't even function. And from that point on, the glory of God was seen as being in the temple. So Ezekiel goes to the temple... And he sees the glory of God as he had seen on the plain. Not the plain, uh, but the, you know, the plain. Where he had seen the chariot come down to him. When the chariot of God in chapter 1 came, he saw the Shekinah glory of God on this chariot. Are you still with me? If you remember back to chapter 1. Now he sees that same glory in the temple. Verse uh, 9. Uh, chapter 9, verse 3, says, Now the glory of God went up from above the cherubim where it had been. Up above the cherubim is that symbolic idea of the Ark of the Covenant lid with the cherubim wings on it. Up above the cherubim where it had been and moved to the threshold of the temple. So now the glory of God is moving from the inner court, the inner holy of holies, to the threshold, you know, the, outs the outskirts. Then chapter 10, verses 3 and 4. Now, I need you to go back for me. I did that. Thank you. Now, the cherubim were standing on the south side of the temple when the man went in and a cloud filled the inner court. Then the glory of the Lord rose from above the cherubim and moved to the threshold of the temple. Another passage where he's saying it moved to the threshold of the temple. Then in chapter 10, verses 16, excuse me, 18 through 19. He says, then the glory of the Lord departed from over the threshold of the temple and stopped above the cherubim. While I watched the cherubim spread their wings and rose from the ground, and as they went, the wheels went with them. They stopped at the entrance to the east gate of the Lord's house, and the glory of the God of Israel was above them. You're staying with me, right? Went from the Holy of Holies to where? To the threshold. And now it's going from the threshold to where? It's there. Yeah, sorry. The eastern gate. You thought it was a trick question, didn't you? I'm afraid to answer because he hadn't said it yet. Um, no, to the entrance to the east gate of the Lord's house. The eastern gate of the temple was also at the wall of the city of Jerusalem. Then in chapter 11, verses 22 and 23, it says, Then the cherubim with the wheels beside them spread their wings, and the glory of the Lord of Israel was above them. 
The glory of the Lord went up from within the city, the eastern gate, and stopped above the mountain east of it. Anybody want to guess what the mountain east of it is? It's the Mount of Olives. It's the Mount of Olives. So he sees this progression of the glory of the Lord leaving the inner court, going to the threshold of the temple, going to the eastern gate, and eventually to the Mount of Olives. Now, I'm going to get to a lot of that stuff in just a minute. But here's the point. God has left the building. God has left. When I was younger, I remember, Rob and I can remember the days when Elvis was around, and they would always say, Elvis has left the building. Because all the fans would stay there, screaming for Elvis to sing some more, and uh, they'd have to say, Elvis had left. Well, Ezekiel is seeing the horror for the nation of Israel. They have, they've staked everything on God's presence being in that building, in the Holy of Holies. God lives there. We're the people of God because he lives right there. But they've turned their backs on him because of their worship. They've become like what they've worshipped. And now God has said, okay, you're thumbing your nose at me. I'm out of here. My judgment is pronounced. And my final judgment is this. I'm leaving your presence. Now, they're going to come back to the land years from now. They're going to build another temple. Ezra is going to build a temple. I can tell you one thing it never says in the book of Ezra. That God's glory returns to the temple. As a matter of fact, in Ezra, Herod's temple never references God's glory returning to the temple. Ever. As a matter of fact, you're not going to get it till this. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The glory of God never returns until the person of Christ steps into the earth. And then we beheld his glory. His glory wasn't limited to a temple. It's been now given to him. By the way, if you want to talk about progressions, talk about the Mount of Olives to the Eastern Gate to the Temple Mount. The glory of God never returns to the temple until Jesus sets foot in the temple. By the way, besides when he was 12, and some argue had the glory of God, it's an argument, but many see the glory of God descending on, God, on Jesus at his baptism. We could argue the theological fine points here. But the point being this, that, that he cleansed the temple. He came into the temple, and there was the glory of God returning to the temple. But the glory of God did not stay in the temple. In Acts 7... 48, Stephen in his favorite sermon says, however, the Most High does not live in houses made by men. He makes it clear God's presence is no longer limited to the temple area. It's not ever limited to a building. And on the day of Pentecost, by the way, when the Spirit of God comes, the descriptors that are used are of wind and of fire. They're very similar to the descriptors that Ezekiel uses in his stuff. And in Ephesians 2, 21, it says, In him the whole building. Wait a minute, I thought we weren't in a building. Well, who's the building? That's right. We are the building. The building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple to the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling 
in which God lives by his spirit. I know I've taken a long time to get here. Uh, Hopefully you've enjoyed our walk through scripture to see these points, which I hope are clear to you. What you worship is what you become. What you worship leads to life or death. And ultimately, what you worship, because we are the people of God, should reflect the glory of God because we now are his temple. Individually and corporately, we are the temple of the Lord. Here's my question to you today in my closing. What is the idol that is trying to raise itself up in your life? To make you become like it, to make you worship You may be saying, well, Pastor, how can I really even figure that out? Here's one way I found in my life, what is it that frustrates me or makes me angry when I don't get it? What is is the thing that I want that if I don't get it, then I get frustrated or angry? I've discovered for me, now you may have a different standard, but I've discovered for me that's, that's something that's easily becoming an idol in my life. If I don't get what I want. Do you understand what I mean by that? So if I, don't, if, I, if I worship money and I'm not getting it, I easily become frustrated if, if my money goes away. You know, it's not about if my car breaks down. I, I, really, it's a car. It breaks down. What ticks me off is the money I'm going to have to spend to, to take care of it. The cost it's going to be in my life. So we've all got those. Just look for that. What is the idol in your life? And to ultimately say, am I on the path or life or death here? Am I, am I choosing the right road? And am I truly reflecting to the world, to my family, the glory of God? Last night I was watching a documentary on ESPN. I enjoy it. There's a Roy Halladay, which um, he's a pitcher, one of the greatest pitchers of the last 30 years, pitched a perfect game. His wife said something in the interview. What what ultimately happens is Roy Halladay becomes addicted to painkillers and kills himself in a plane crash after he retires. One of the greatest pitchers of the last 30 years. And his wife said this, no one knows what's going on in your house behind your closed doors. No one on the outside knows. Everybody looked at him from the outside thought, man, this guy's the greatest pitcher. He's got it all together. He made $60 million last year. Something ridiculous like that. No one knows what's going on with you and in your house except your house. Even in your house, I'm saying, are you reflecting the glory of the Lord to the people around you? I know this has been a long, longer than I anticipated kind of discussion. Hopefully you've learned more about the word of God and the the richness of the passage of Ezekiel and to see the glory of God. By the way, some people talk about When Jesus, at his second coming, when he returns, he'll come to the Mount of Olives through the eastern gate to the temple. That when the Messiah returns through that blocked up eastern gate. I don't know. I do know this. What I think Ezekiel is trying to say is, I'll put a new spirit within you. New heart. The glory of God will indwell us, not it. Let us reflect then the glory of the God to the world around us. We're going to take up an offering. I always find it fascinating that one of the key aspects of a worship service is giving money. 
Why is that? Because giving money reflects a lot of what's going on in our heart. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So when you come, and I want to encourage you to come today. You know, I know we're giving online. There are different ways that you can give. You can text to give. You can give online. You can mail. But I'm going to ask you to, even if you just take the prayer card out this morning and, and put your name on it, put it in the offering plate as an act of worship saying, God, here I am totally and completely. This represents all of me. If you want to give money, that's great. We're not looking for your money, really. It's really about what's in your heart. So put prayer requests or whatever you might want on your prayer card. So get one out. Take a card. Get out of the seat in front of you. We're going to bring our offering to the front. I want everybody moving uh, to say, I want to reflect uh, the glory of God. I want this to be an act of worship, act of worship before you. While you're doing that, I want to remind you that this Wednesday night we have a drive-in service, especially.